Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast, the Lex G podcast. Today we're going to talk about Steven Spielberg. Why not? Why not? Um, you know, the biggest director of all time. Um, yeah, we'll do a little bit of a lightning round. I'm not going to go through this a thousand miles an hour. Some of these I'm not going to go into too much. Um, <laughs> there's one in particular um, that I very barely remember. But, uh, you know, everybody loves Spielberg. I figure this will be pretty universal and i'm gonna try to take it a notch slower uh some guy you know i've had a lot of great feedback which i really appreciate you know everybody's been really nice about this i'm having a fun time doing them um trying to be you know super positive something that everyone can kind of enjoy nothing too crazy or anything but um you know we put something like this out there especially someone like me i'm basically from like you know movie forums and and a lock twitter feed so anybody who's coming to this probably is familiar with my shtick and knows what they're in for so although i really appreciate you know, the, what are not to toot my own horn, but kind of rave reviews. They're all from inside the house in a certain way. You know, it's like if you, you know, you had a stand up show and it was, you know, a bringer show that was all your buddies who are already inclined to like it. Um, so I haven't had much pushback, but if I, the first kind of negative comment I had the other day, some guy was like, you know, this would be pretty good, but like, why are you talking so fast? Why are you a thousand miles an hour? This could be like a f- nice 45 minute easy listen. And instead you're just going a hundred miles an hour and running out of air and it's kind of taxing to listen to. And I, you know, I wasn't mad about that. I appreciate that feedback. The truth is that editing these is an enormous pain in the ass. And I just have this software called anchor and when I do a cut it's never seamless and I'm not good enough at it yet so I have a tendency to just turn on the mic and I want to blaze through it in one breath I'm also because I'm just talking into a little gamer headphone um I'm afraid to like swallow or take a swig of water so half the time I'm choking and out of breath and like I'm trying to like (laughs) try to like move saliva from one end of my mouth to the other and just gasping and trying to get through this fast but uh Maybe I'll take a take a drink or take a breath at some point in this one so it's not so manic. And thanks, everybody, for listening to them. Steven Spielberg, all right? Um, so in this book that um, John Carpenter talks about, you know, going to see Rio Bravo a lot as a little kid, a movie he just loved, something about it just hit close to home. He would go every weekend and watch Rio Bravo, and he would come out of the, in the lobby and study the poster, and he'd be like, you know, he knows... Uh, John Wayne and, you know, the other actors in it. But he would see that name, Howard Hawks, and it was a big name on the poster. And he's like, what's that guy do? And that's how he pieced together what a director did. And I said, my guys for that were definitely Carpenter because of, I would see The Fog and Halloween and Escape from New York really young. And George Lucas because of Star Wars and Landis uh, because Animal House and Blues Brothers. And then definitely for probably just about everybody, Spielberg, you know, everyone of my generation, Gen X, you know, people are just saying, you know, that was their guy was Spielberg. He was the guy that like, he was their first favorite director. He made these movies that if you were a, a late seventies and especially an eighties kid, they really captured the zeitgeist at the time. You know, he's like this great populist entertainer who's for whatever reason is just plugged into what uh, audiences want. He's very universal. He's what kids want. And it was to the point where he was so big and he's such a famous 
name direct you know there aren't many directors it, by and large you know we're all film dorks we all know about like the auteur theory and we all can you know ooh, that's a brian de palma split diopter shot oh toby hooper did this and that and you know we're like quoting the cahier du cinema and everybody's talking about their favorite you know claude chabrol movie or whatever but by and large your regular work day all-american hot dog guy I don't know why he's a hot dog guy. He doesn't know the names of directors. Like, people I know who are just, they like movies. They know movie stars. They know, oh, it's Tom Cruise. Oh, it's The Rock. Oh, it's Tom Hanks. It's Julia Roberts. They don't know who directed most things. There's only a few names. Spielberg would be one of them. And for most of us, he was kind of like one of the first, if not the first one, where we began to associate like, hey, this kind of looks like this. This kind of feels like this. This has the same music. This has the same atmosphere about it and it's kind of how we piece together what a director did if you were part of gen x obviously made all these formative movies that were huge hits like jaws close encounters raiders you know on up through the 90s things if you were a younger guy like jurassic park or hook or i know hook is huge to like uh millennial and zoomer kids especially millennials probably not zoomers i'm going to take you back through my memories of these and i'm also gonna i'll just start out by saying like what I was going for there was saying how big Spielberg is, is he's so big that it kind of surprises me how beloved he is amongst like hardcore, super serious film guys, because there was an era, I think where I took Spielberg for granted, probably definitely in that late eighties era where he was, you know, the always guy and the empire of the sun guy. And he wasn't cool. Like color of purple. Like when I was a teenager, this is when I was a teenager. Spielberg was cool when I was a kid because I loved Jaws. I loved Close Encounters, Duel, E.T. I'll get to. It wasn't my favorite thing for various reasons, but I, I acknowledge it was huge for kids. It was an enormous, it was the biggest movie of all time for many years. But when I got to be a teenager, I wanted to be dark and edgy. And to me, like, especially when he was making like Always and Hook and I was, you know, into, you know, I was starting to get into De Palma and Scorsese and Ridley Scott and Tony Scott and Michael Mann uh, and loved Apocalypse Now was was like my favorite movie in The Shining and 2000, you know, I, I had to have my VHS of Clockwork Orange. There was an era where Spielberg not only wasn't cool, but I that, that stigma stuck with me that he was like the populist guy. He was for not, not generic people like just for he was very mainstream and even now like in this in the new modern day of like you know cinema snobs and people you know who have movie and criterion you would think like spielberg would be kind of verboten like it would be like rooting for the yankees it would be like your favorite band being u2 or something like you know when you want to be something edgy like you would always expect like i always would expect like cinema snobs and like the real hardcore auteur guys would be like, oh, Spielberg. So, but everyone from like Armand White to, you know, your biggest fussy criterion message board guy is still, you know, just in love with the craft and the, the aesthetic of Spielberg and um, still regards him as one of the best to the point where like, I was kind of surprised. I thought there would be guys like Spielberg. He's for, you know, he's generic. You got to be into Gaspar Noe or something. But um, he, he, he maintains that elite cool factor thing, even in a way that sometimes there's a guy who we all, a lot of the guys in this feed know, like 
Jeff Wells, who's an insane lunatic movie blogger, but he's one of the very few guys who ever pushes back against Spielberg. It's probably why, you know, there's probably, <laughs> it's kind of like talking shit about Suge Knight or Oprah. Like, I wouldn't go out there and do it, but he does have this resistance to it. And I always thought there was some resistance to, like, the happy endings, kind of the clunky endings, sort of the schmaltz and the sentimentality. I thought that used to be something that was critiqued about Spielberg, at least in those days like the gen x days of 20 25 years ago i think maybe he's come back around just the earnestness of the times with the younger set like some of that like malaise and that uh gen x there was a lot of like dark irony in the mid like when tarantino was the coolest thing which i was talking about tarantino the other day when oliver stone and david lynch and these like dark visions and oliver stone being so bombastic those were kind of the cool things when I was like 18, 20, 22. Spielberg was like, ah, this guy who's got to stick on the sappy, you know, you know, the war of the world is what's his name, the kid, they, everything's okay. And uh, I, I thought there was this pushback against, you know, this lighter approach. Spielberg was light. He wasn't, he wasn't Oliver Stone putting his sweat and balls and cum all over your face. You had to like, you know, <laughs> he had this uh, earnest Americana um, that was very, uh, you know, not to go back to the word populist, but it was what, Amer you know, the mainstream America would want. And I always thought like, these like cool, dark, snipe, snarky, sinister movie guys. Who are, uh, uh. Other than Jeff Wells, you don't see a ton of pushback on Spielberg anymore. He, I just think it's, as I was saying, it's come back around maybe. He's in fashion, although he hasn't made a movie in a few years. And the last couple we got were like The Post and Ready Player One. Um, not being the greatest example of this. Those are fine, but uh, I, who knows? He's got the West Side Story next year. But let's go back, starting with Duel, which uh, I loved as a kid because he's, dri he's driving like a, a cherry red uh, Valiant. Isn't that a Plymouth Valiant? I should look that up, but I'm pretty sure it's a, or is it a duster? I think it's a Valiant, right? My grandparents had one of each. They had a broom duster that was brown, and then they had a Valiant that they were always, my grandfather was always working on the garage. I thought it was an awesome car. You got Dennis Weaver in his uh, 70s guy's uh, <laughs> tinted lens glasses. And uh, I love Duel because it's, I love car chase movies anyway. When I was a teenager, one of my favorite things was The Hitcher with, you know, kind of an update of Duel in some ways with C. Thomas Howell doing this drive away across the country. And it was against this big, I'm obsessed with things that are like driving across the American Southwest, across Americana, uh, these big skies, these blue, blue, I mean, very, um, in the early days of Spielberg. The primary colors were there. It was like really striking. I talk about this a lot in Duel and Jaws, a little bit in Sugarland Express, which I'll get to in a minute. These like enormous vistas, blue skies, primary colors, like you get the red car, the blue sky, the yellow desert. In Jaws, you got the boat, every the blue, big blue ocean, those striking yellow barrels that they attach to the shark, the red in the water. These movies were very elemental and Spielberg eventually, and even in, a little bit in some of these movies, he was kind of a, always kind of a hazy soft focus guy, but he was really big on this bold primary colors in some way. These, you know, imagery that was very immediate and direct and in Duel, which is, you know, very short movie. It was originally made for television. He really got to something primal about this. You know, there's not too much plot. I mean, Dennis uh, Weaver kind of, you know, runs the gamut with the acting, you know, doing all the parents paranoia and the he's he's extremely effective it's a great performance but uh by and large it's a really minimal movie you don't ever see this truck driver that he's ticked off in some way and it's just a you know it was the thing that put him on the map he had done some columbos some night gallery a lot of tv stuff some other tv movies um 
that came after this, the TV, like he did something evil, which I saw half of one time. Um, I've seen it. I tried to watch it on my iPad a few years ago because somebody had it up on YouTube and I, I wanted to see another one of his TV movies. And it's uh, Darren McGavin, I think. And is, he he moves into a sinister, like satanic farmhouse that's possessed by a demon. And I'm like, not Spielberg. You're not tangling with dark forces. Like, what if Spielberg got hexed from doing this? You can't have Spielberg doing that. You got to have like D. Snyder make that, you know? You can't have Spielberg going around with like a Ouija board or, or like, uh, you know, dealing in the dark arts that's like leave that for dario argento but uh, from what i saw but i remember it being effective and also it was shot by bill butler who shot jaws and it had some of that same you know the powder blue skies and just that striking look of early spielberg and going back to duel that's all over duel and it you know it was a big hit and with the tv and i guess eventually they expanded it out to feature length got him his big first you know feature which kind of is unsung in a way. Sugarland Express, everyone kind of skips to Jaws, but Sugarland Express, although I haven't, it's not a movie I rewatch a lot. It has a certain melancholy. It's definitely one of those 70s road movies, Lovers on the Run movies, you know, from Bonnie and Clyde to uh, Thieves Like Us, a lot of things, you know, Badlands, a lot of stuff like that was very, in the post-Bonnie and Clyde era, that like 70s downer era and here you got William Atherton in his striking red checkered uh, hunter jacket and young Goldie Hawn and there you know, a lot of shotgun car chases and Ben Johnson's got all of those big 70s sedan police cruisers and uh, um, it, it it's a lot of it's kind of the middle ground for sure like when you see Duel you see Jaws I mean this is like you see him becoming a more cinematic you know there's a bigger scope, bigger scale. He's got, you know, more name actors in the mix here. You know, we got our buddy William Atherton, who we'd later know from from Die Hard. And it's not action-packed. It's more of a, it's a little, you know, it's sweet and it's melancholy and it's a little bit of a downer and it's got this depressing ending and this, like, you know, mournful harmonica music by John Williams um, and beautiful two, three, five to one. You know, he finally gets to work in scope for this. And it was, you know, it's now considered written off maybe to some degree as like the, you know, the middle ground or the run up to Jaws that got him Jaws. But it's worth seeing in its own right. I can't do like a I'm not going to take you through the plot points of uh, Sugarland Express because I haven't seen it in 20, 15, 20 years. But uh, underrated Jaws was my favorite when I was a kid. It still might be in some ways my favorite Spielberg movie. It means a lot to me because I grew up. I was obsessed with the ocean. You know, I always talk about setting sail. In part, it's because of this movie. In part, it's because I lived in Maine. When I was really little, we lived in Maine. My old man worked in uh, sports, and we were up there in Portland. And we would go to Old Orchard Beach. And my first movie that I saw in a theater was actually Jaws 2. I was too young to have seen Jaws, although I saw it later when it came around on cable. And I think when I was real little, what, what I remember from being really little about this movie is I couldn't wait for them to get out on the boat like everyone talks about it being a horror movie I just loved the big sea adventure like to me there's always this discussion like when there's like what is, what's the scariest horror movie and people are like The Exorcist The Shining Friday the 13th Halloween someone always goes Jaws and I'm like Jaws isn't a horror movie to me Jaws is like a Boy Scout movie it's so affectionate that John Williams music that's almost like sh sea shanty music um that's it's just it's so sentimental in a way it reminds me of being a little kid there's no you know the book is a little sleazy with this affair between hooper and uh uh mrs brody none of that's in this movie that was a great idea to cut that out but uh and i was enchanted by this am idea of amity um 
Amity Island or whatever, just this locate this town and Murray Hamilton is the corrupt mayor, this kind of shady mayor and uh, Roy Scheider driving around in his uh, you know Chevy Blazer with like old timey tunes playing on the radio and uh, yeah, I love this. I used to rent this from the library, every, you know, not to get all like you know eight paragraphs about what it meant to me, but I would go to the library to rent Jaws and my mom don't my mom would be like, don't you get sick of that? And I was like, no, I can't. I could not get enough of it. And as I was saying, I used to not wait not be able to wait till they got out on the ocean. There's a part where like they set sail and they say goodbye to Lorraine Gary. And there's this nice shot of Quint loading up the boat with Hooper in the background. And then they, there's this music as they pull off from the dock and they're going out to sea. It was just everything to me. And I love the first half just as much, of course. And there's great character details and, you know, Scheider playing around with his kid, you know, he's a very convincing suburban dad and he's this, landlubber from New York who doesn't fit in and just the the distinction of the three characters and everyone talks about the Indianapolis scene is great and when they compare their wounds it's just three totally different guys all at the you know three very different actors even you know Scheider this kind of street smart guy who usually plays cops or kind of tough guy characters and neurotic Richard Dreyfus, who's pretty cool here and then Robert Shaw just the ultimate badass telling this story and you know his accent is going really big he's really going for it with this performance but it's just a perfect you couldn't get better chemistry between three guys it's just just watching them together even before the shark and that awesome John Williams you know obviously everyone always talks about the dun 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 as being so effective and the scary scenes uh early on which are all masterful you know that push in on Brody with the you know the they reverse the back and push in and that stuff in the and uh the anytime the shark attacks the beach is incredibly effective but I just think of it more so like that bouncy jaunty music once they're out in the ocean and there's this one moment where they pull in the barrels and it's when someone gets caught in the ropes there's this little bit of john williams music that's just it reminds me of being a little kid so much i could play it for you if i could find it on the thing but i would probably be a rights issue but it just like it, it i get all choked up from it because somehow it just it's a little snippet of, of score there when they're pulling in and there's um, it's a quiet down moment in between shark attacks on the boat. And there's just this really beautiful music. It just reminds me of home, reminds me of my family, reminds me of, you know, growing up around, uh, you know, a little bit about the ocean when I was a kid being in Maine. And, you know, we eventually moved to Pittsburgh, which is nowhere near. But anytime we could get to a lake or something, I was excited. The great irony being I've lived in California now for 30 years and have never, <laughs> never set foot in that disgusting syringe ridden Pacific ocean. But, uh, that movie is just, uh, that was my favorite, man. It's just like, and later on we'll get to Jurassic Park and what that meant to the guys 10 years younger than me. And that's their movie that they remember being you know seismic to them and scary and for me it was jaws jaws got to be my favorite spielberg movie um close encounters too i i saw that a lot on hbo when i was a kid and what strikes me i was watching the fog a few weeks ago and it's striking for i don't think there's much love loss between carpenter and spielberg especially probably not on i mean spielberg likes anybody for sure but i mean i've I, there's always that thing where carpenter's just such a cynical grump and i know he's kind of i'm sure he respects him as a filmmaker and you know the um <laughs> obviously he kind of took a lot from the fog even if it wasn't it, it might not have even been uh conscious but that scene in the beginning of the fog where all the you know gadgets around town are going off by themselves and lights are coming on and uh lifts at the garage are going up and down it's very much like what i thought was so creepy in close encounters the little boy at the beginning with his train set and the aliens you know that's a close encounter 
where was I going with that? Oh yeah, the carpenter eventually kind of grouses about how E.T. blew up and the thing didn't. So I'm sure he has some lifelong vendetta. <laughs> he seems to be grumpy about any director in his own carpenter way that probably doesn't mean any you know doesn't mean anything personal by it. But uh, the fog just reminds me of the sequence. But we're not talking about the fog. We're talking about Close Encounters. It's a movie that's for a movie that eventually is kind of hopeful about these goofy ass aliens, which I, I, someone in my feed watched it maybe for the first time. And they were like, wow, what's with these stupid aliens? Ooh, like it didn't, it didn't hold up, I guess to them, but that was never the aw shucks and the Roy, Roy Neary, the idea that he could go up to space. I wouldn't go up to space either. <laughs> He's, you know, I, I just, I wouldn't, man. I gotta, I, I gotta go see like uh, you know, Seaberg at the arc light or something. You know, I can't go, <laughs> I can't be up there palling around with aliens what if i want to get laid again like i want to bang models i don't want to go up to uh be stuck up there with that string bean thing um but uh that's the stuff that worked best for me in close encounters was the paranoia the eeriness of those early scenes with dreyfus out doing his rounds and that thing comes up to this day when i'm at like a a light at uh you know, traffic light, especially in dangerous Los Angeles, you're at a traffic light at 1130 at night. You always kind of tense up when someone pulls up behind you and probably in part subconsciously, it's because of that part where he's out in the truck and the spaceship comes up behind him. And, you know, he meets up with, uh, what's her name? Is it Melinda Dillon is the single mom. And he kind of gives his wife, Terry Gar the hi hat. And, you know, we maybe could, we know some of the things about Spielberg's personal life. It kind of seems like Terry Gar gets a little bit of the rolling pin treatment here. And he's kind of a dick, like stepping out on his kids and on his wife and playing with his mashed potatoes, but he's just so consumed with this. And then we get, you know, a little touch of class with Francois Truffaut and Bob Balaban, who was a little kid. I, I could, for some reason I associated Dreyfus and Balaban together for so long because of this movie, I don't know, I guess they had similar nervous energy or something, but, uh, I always associate the two because of this. Um, it's and again the Vilmos Zygmunt uh, cinematography. It's such a beautiful movie, and that you know the da 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 and the ha ha ha. Right? Like it's sort of so many things about it are so big and so ingrained in my memory from thirty five years that the fact that it doesn't entirely stitch together, like it it, it almost. When I go back and look at it, it's sort of uneven in a way, and I'm sure he would admit this too. I think it's the only movie that he has an official screen credit on, and it's kind of precocious in some ways, or kind of aw shucks and a little embarrassing in some ways, especially, you know, Dreyfus just being a goof and, you know, doing all this stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it gets by. It definitely gets by. I don't know about the ending. You know, it's at the Wyoming Tower, whatever. I mean, some people love it. Some people, and of course, they've recut it so many different times. It's one of those things that he was tweaking with for ages and ages, and I can never remember which version of the movie I'm even watching, whether he's going to get on. And then the idea that they start playing that wish upon a star is like, all right, I'm out. I do the Seinfeld the Seinfeld wave, <laughs> wave away around that point. But uh, for years, you know, it's, classic it's terrific it's from that early round realm uh 1941 i'm one of those guys who always has to be like 1941's underrated you know here's working with uh william fraker as the cinematographer and it's uh more it's soft focus this is super soft focus there was there were hints of the softness in jaws and close encounters this is just full-on blur vision this was very much a 70s thing with the haze and here he's doing it to affect this idea of throwback nostalgia for 1941 um Southern California, you know, through this marine layer and it's a period piece and um, it's very diffuse looking and you got the cast of stars. You got everyone from like Christopher Lee to, to Shiro Mifune and then you got the SNL all-stars and um, 
you know, these like kind of all American types like Nancy Allen and Matheson who are in and out of movies. Is it Matheson? Jesus, did I just, is it, is it, I always want to say it's Treat Williams, but I'm going with Matheson only because I'm not looking at it right now. I can pull it up on my phone, but uh, we all know that the ding that this movie forever has is that it looks great. It's amazing. It has these spectacular things. It has Eddie Deason in a Ferris wheel, which is five stars right there, but uh, it's generally not very, it's just not funny. Was it Kubrick who told him this? They're like, it's just not, it's just not funny. It's, it's just like none of the comedy and it works. I mean, other than like, what's his name from Dr. Strangelove throwing his boots in the toilet to, to, so they'll think they're giant turds and come in. I'm like, it's so juvenile. Uh, I, I do remember that when I was like nine or 10 and I would see this, you know, they do the riff on the Jaws naked girl with the periscope and you see her coin slot of her butt was very exciting and arousing to me when I was a, uh, a young dude, but um, as for the big laughs, uh, they're kind of few and far between. Although the scope of it, the scale, and this ending, you know, John Candy, you got Belushi in there, of course, mugging like a jackass with a cigar, doing the pilot thing. Like, it's a lot of strenuous stuff. You know, the big, you know, USO dance type numbers. And uh, I hope that's what West Side Story is, just some of the musical numbers, the dance numbers from this. It has that that heedless energy, as my buddy Monty likes to say about certain other movies. But, uh it's like it's all it's manic without being really funny, although Robert Stack going to see Dumbo. OK, that that is kind of funny. And now as I'm looking this up, yes, it was Matheson and not Treat Williams. What do I win for that? Let's go eat. Oh, no. All right. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, what, what do you need me to tell you that Raiders of the Lost Ark is great? What's weird is that the first time I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, missed the beginning. Thanks to mom. Mom took. uh the family to the theater and uh, we're, we're, go- we're going to see Raiders. This movie's supposed to be really good. And I was eight or nine and heard that it was action packed wall to wall action, more exciting than bond, more exciting than, you know, Clint, whatever else I was watching, this was going to be Bronson. This was going to, you know, outdo it all. Cause I think even, you know, in the lead up Lucas and Spielberg who collaborated for this Kasdan, everything, all the greats, they had said like, this was their version of bond of bond. They wanted to do bond, but one better, like something, even bigger scale, this adds a little bit of, you know, it's more historical, it's, you know, period piece, get the big, uh, you know, foreign locales, of course, and then you got this kind of supernatural ending with the Ark of the Covenant, bringing in all these mythic elements, it's huge, everything, who wouldn't have been super excited to see this at age nine, Ma takes us to the theater, and we're sitting there, like, waiting for the action, waiting for the action, and it's not coming on, and some old guy goes, why are you taking, why are you guys sitting here for, why is a kid in reds? And we went to the, we were in the wrong auditorium and Ma grabbing everybody's wrist. Hey, we're going, oh, we're in the wrong place. We go over and miss the entire, you know, opening giant rolling ball, iconic Alfred Molina. I hate snakes, the blow darts. I get in there and it's time for the the lecture, you know, that that thing that is a big chance, you know, for a movie to take. The, it's basically a schoolroom lecture there where he explains the, the Tannis and the the Ark of the Covenant. And it's I was expecting like every second of it was going to be like, 
you know, a Plymouth Le Mans or a Pontiac Le Mans going 150 miles an hour with a camera mounted on the tires, like no stopping for plot and anything. So as a little kid who was already a moron and having missed the setup of the anyway, my first viewing of this movie was a disaster, a disaster. And I didn't get it till I saw it again. Thank God. And obviously this is Harrison Ford in his highest form. It's got the great, you know, chemistry with Karen Allen, who's pounding liquor, you know, to fight, you know, to uh, do her drinking games and whatnot. And uh, you got Tote and you got Paul Freeman as Belloc. Just a great, I love movies with a great asshole villain like that. Just super smarmy and the Tote guy with the, with the thing. And I was still pretty young. Again, even, you know, bad first viewing and all. There's some kind of scary things in this if you're a kid, like that that medallion melting into his hand was creepy and the face. There was definitely that obsession, and it's again in another Spielberg movie the next year in Poltergeist. There was such an obsession with ripping off ripping off faces in 80s movies, like, you know, the guy with the maggots and the steak and the face thing in Poltergeist, and then uh, there was something called Treasure of the Four Crowns in 3D, which was like an Italian ripoff of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this guy's face had smoke coming out at little points, and then it melted off. And there was something called Dance of the Dwarves, where somebody ripped their face off in the Amazon. It was just like such a recurring theme. I don't know what the obsession and, you know, Tote's face melting off with that wag. I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty grim. The great, great movie critic Robin Wood, who was a very cerebral Marxist collegiate uh, thinker when I got to college you know Raiders is classic it's iconic you know you don't you're a kid you just love this I remember he had a very bullshit theory about how this movie is about the embrace of Reagan you know sometimes he was very profound and sometimes he was completely full of shit he has a book called Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan if it's like a mainstay of college uh film discourse and he talks about Raiders of the Lost Ark as being an embrace an embrace of Reagan and and racist and homophobic and putting down the repressed and at the end when the indie says don't look away look or don't look at it look away from the light he was saying to look away from feminism and gay rights to embrace Reagan and I'm just like man if you knew like what an <laughs> what when you keep in mind like what an arch liberal Spielberg obviously probably was then and certainly is like a towering figure of like he's not just a you know a typical Democrat celebrity. He's like the conscience of America through his movies and through his charity and activism and whatnot. The idea that this movie is saying like, you know, this is pro Reagan and like don't look at the light is denying the the rights of gays, blacks and is really a, a reach. I don't know why I had to throw that in there, other than to show off my utterly useless film degree from uh, film and film studies from University of Pittsburgh, but Raiders of the And the action, of course, you know, my favorite was the truck chase. You know, that's everybody's favorite. Obviously, you go back and that's in... It. I watched Legend of the Lone Ranger last year. One of the things I was excited about getting a new fancy snazzy TV is I can demand all these movies that I saw then or I sort of missed or I saw half of when I was nine and it's a blur. Um, they do that stunt, that same stunt in Legend of the Lone Ranger. Very cool. The same year, I think. Uh, I, I'm... You can look it up. Maybe the same guy did it, but that car chase was the most exciting thing ever. And then when he gets on, or the truck chase, I'm sorry. And when on the boat and the black guy who ended up being in layer cake 20 years later and whatnot, um, and the big, you know, the big finale with the arc, the great classic closing shot of all the, uh, you know, the relics and everything. I mean, it's indisputable. Who can argue with that? I guess it's probably... Might as well, like, knock out all the indie movies. Well, maybe I'll do each one as I get to it. But uh, there was a time when I was a kid, because 
when, when Temple of Doom, which I'll get to, in, well, I'll just do Temple of Doom right now, and then I'll double back to E.T. and Twilight Zone. But Temple of the Doom, Temple of Doom. <laughs> Didn't I promise some guy I would slow this down? I'm getting all excited. I get so excited talking about the movies. I'm so positive. That one was a little more up my alley because it, I got what I wanted. I didn't get my Pontiac Le Mans uh, Popeye Doyle mobile, but I got a roller coaster, a literal roller coaster at the end. And that part with the rope bridge and it's just nonstop action. It didn't stop in that last stretch and also had the, the rip in the, the heart out. It also had, you know, uh, Delbert Grady from the shining in it for a minute. And it had nice try. Lao Shay. <laughs> a little Dan Aykroyd there too. A little Lao Shay and uh Kate Capshaw the bugs. I don't know when I was little, I was like, no, no, Temple of Doom's better. Because they may just sit through that classroom part, which I was still bitter about from Raiders. I was like, no, no, they don't have the classroom part in Temple of Doom. It's all act of Doom. It's all action. Um, it's very silly action. But um, for and then that raft, it, it falls, you know, what, 900 miles and they're okay. Um, that was the one I think I liked better just when I was a teenager because I, I, was, I was insistent that it was more action-packed to use my word i keep going back to and then when we got to uh crusade i love the fact that it had connery it also had a big doesn't have a big dirigible dirigible or a blimp or something and the banter with ford and it's got allison duty who of the the major the major indiana jones babes despite her rather uh you know um unfortunate name is probably the most up my alley you know from uh taffin and a view to a kill that one though, it kind of def- it kind of watered down the action to some degree with all the like light father son banter, but it was such a delight. And Connery was like that was the height of Connery post Untouchables. Um, Connery just you know having his big resurgence and then putting him in that and you know being Harrison Ford's father, even though there's like a what a ten year age difference between the two, and one is a balding, uh, very bald Scottish man. <laughs> With a heavy brogue and his son is this, you know, white Montana stoner carpenter or whatever. But uh, <laughs> of the three, uh, I think I eventually settled back into like in Raiders, Raiders the most. Obviously, it's the, mo- the best structure, the best screenplay and probably the best paced um, when you really think it through. I mean, it's one of those movies no one will shut up about. It's kind of like Star Wars where I'm like, can you ask us to get a new movie? So the fact that I just spent eight minutes rambling on about it, I'm, you know, mad at myself in some way, but I figure that's one people love. E.T., nah, this, you know, this was lost on me. When I was, this was like, I've told you this, like my parents, my mom being the big movie person, my dad worked a lot and she wanted a little movie buddy. So she would let me see things that were so far beyond what a eight, nine, 10 year old kid should be watching. And I'm like, you know, I was whatever year that was, I was probably more excited about seeing death wish two or <laughs> Firefox or something with Clint. Um, ET is really sentimental and it's very, I considered it too kiddie for me at the ripe age of nine. Like I wanted to be watching, you know, escape from New York. I think I had already seen like Nighthawks, 
Looker, Wolfen, Escape from New York. Those were all on constant rotation on HBO. And I thought I was such a like little smart kid. I was writing these little stupid fake HBO guys, and I was writing these fake screenplays, and I would make film strips. And I turned Escape from New York into my own fake movie called 1997. And I would draw little pictures of a guy like Snake Plissken. I was just consumed with that, with Michael Myers. And I was thought I was, oh, so dose like a little edgelord at age nine. And I remember going to the lobby, even when we went to see this, the, the, the standees in the theater were like Night Shift, Blade Runner, and um, I want to say Conan, maybe. Definitely Blade Runner and Night Shift, for sure. Maybe Friday the 13th, Part 3. I don't know, they were all out around kind of the same time. But I was like, I got to see this kid's movie. But my mom's like, this is going to be good. You're going to like this. It's about a kid like you. And obviously, Henry Thomas, he's, you know, the ultimate 80s suburban kid. You got those big California, you know, that big tract house look of like the San Fernando Valley or, or Simi Valley or Santa Clarita or wherever the hell, hell they filmed it. You got uh, Elliot's brother, the dude who, who the hell was that guy? Nobody's ever heard from him again. Uh, Drew Barrymore, obviously adorable as the kid, you know, the sis, kid sister. Um, and it definitely, if you watch it now, I mean, I've grown to like it. I didn't, at nine, it was just schmaltz to me in a way. Cause I just wanted to be a, a, a like a, I didn't want to be like a, I didn't want to be watching cartoons and kids movies. I wanted to be like a tough guy. And I like Clint Eastwood and Kurt Russell and Bronson. And this was just like sappy to me, but that little like piano, John Williams music and those shots across the suburbia is beautiful. I mean, I've seen it many times since And for a while. It was actually in the eighties. No one would believe this now because things come out and then, you know, tenant comes out. And even though Nolan makes a big to do about, you know, you can never see this in the theater. It's on streaming and it's on, you know, Blu-ray two months later or whatnot. There was an era where ET, you couldn't get it till 1987. So if you hadn't seen it in the theater, it didn't come around a lot. So I only ever had that bad first impression of it. It didn't like come on HBO. It didn't come on network TV. I didn't see it again for like five years. And then I was like, oh, you know, this isn't, I'm being an, an asshole here. This is a beautiful movie. I don't know that. And Peter Coyote, you know, the voice of the Oscars, MC Keys. Um, there was a year when he was the, he was the voice of the Oscars, Peter Coyote, for God knows what reason. And they, someone in Entertainment Weekly, maybe Gleiberman said, he, or Ken Tucker, somebody said like, he looked like he was a blackjack dealer on a riverboat. He had like a, a black vest and he had a Burger World headset on and he would announce things coming up on the, it was like 20 years. It was like, what, what the fuck was that? Why is Peter Coyote doing this? Um, and D Wallace ultimate, like, you know, ultimate Spielberg mom. We know so many, so much has been written about these, these like kind of sexless single mom saint figures in these Spielberg movies with absent fathers. You know, it's not necessarily true of uh, Jaws per se, but I mean, even Jaws, Close Encounters, you get the idea, you know, the dads kind of ditch the kids to go out on this adventure. You know, it's one of revenge in Jaws because his kid's been attacked. But, you know, Roy Neary and uh, Close Encounters basically abandons his kid. And here we got, you know, the single mom, the, you know, the tough single mom, D. Wallace, she loves her kid, would do anything for him. And it's a, you know, her performance is beautiful and everything. I just, and you know what? I don't think I liked the design of that stupid alien. I don't think I liked it when I was nine. I thought he was a dork. Like, I, I don't know. I thought it was dorky, but it, it is what it is. I mean, you can't argue with it now. It was for years the most popular movie in the history of time. Um, so obviously, obviously he was doing something right, no matter how, no matter how much I would have rather been watching, uh, you know, Christopher Reeve and Monsignor at age nine or whatnot. 
then he directed the horrible uh, kick the can segment of Twilight Zone, which was necessitated by, yes, once again, I'll come back to him, our great buddy, John Landis, and what happened on the set of that uh, that awful, you know, that horrible tragedy with Vic Morrow and the two Vietnamese kids on uh, the the first segment of Twilight Zone, and it kind of cast a pall over that whole movie. And clearly, I would imagine Spielberg's heart wasn't in it. And I think I'm I'm not the authority here, but I think he was supposed to do a much edgier, cooler sci-fi horror type thing. And after that, he didn't want to do something dark because it was already the movie had this pall of negativity and just ugliness about it because of the real life tragedy. And I think he just kind of wanted to wash his hands and dashed off this thing with, you know, I love seeing Scatman Crothers, but these old timers like, uh, you know, turning into little kids and wearing oversized clothes and this horrible soft focus and pure schmaltz and whatever else you can say about that Twilight Zone movie. There's a little bit of a vibe to it between the Landis thing, which is very queasy, the Dante thing, which is just outlandish and wacky. And then the George Miller with John Lithgow, everybody's favorite, is very suspenseful. Those three things all ah, the Landis one probably doesn't work per se, but there's an ugliness to it. And then the, the this, this third and fourth are very electric and manic and at high energy. And Spielberg's in the middle of this just sinks it. When I used to watch this when I was a kid. And I was obsessed with this movie because I liked uh, I liked things that were uh, anthologies. Then I was really into creep shows, as I talked about on that creep show thing, creep show pod. I and there was nightmares, which is one with Emilio, where he's the best one in that is Emilio Estevez trying to play this uh, supernatural video game that's coming after him. Um, I like those like three part, four part movies. Like Cat's Eye later would have been one. So I was. Uh, me and the gang in the neighborhood, I was like so obsessed. This is one like VHS cameras. Not This is such a, an aside, but I wanted to do our little local, ver- you know, when Super 8 came out and uh, what's his name? J.J. Abrams is like, we all remember making movies in our backyards as a kid. I'm like, where the, where the fuck were they doing this? <laughs> in, my, in my neighborhood, they were basically, you know, spiking a football into your brain and like, you know, dad's like taping the fucking ball to you with uh, duct tape like uh, Tim McGraw on Friday Night Lights. Like there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of amateur Scorsese's running around the North Hills of Pittsburgh. But I do remember that this inspired me so much. I wrote a little script and I, and I uh, engaged the, uh, the gang in the neighborhood. Like, let's do our own little thing. And I had this thing that was going to be an alien on a ship, on a, on a spaceship, which was, you know, how original. And my buddy across the street was going to do something where toy soldiers, like the little green ones, came to life, which I have no idea how that would have worked. Anyway, the big, uh, the onus here was on my mom. We were like, can you rent us a VHS camera? You know, this was my J.J. Abrams moment. Uh, minus a, 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 a an enthusiastic 12-year-old, uh, you know, we were 12, maybe 11, 12. Yeah, there was, <laughs> the enthusiasm was not of J.J. Abrams' level, and there was no little, like, cute Elle Fanning uh, doppelganger cheering us on, and everyone just ran out of energy. And But the main reason being my mom was like, I'm not renting that thing. You have to give them a credit card. I'm not renting a camera for you. I don't even know what that is, so... That was never meant to be, and I, you know, <laughs> the world, the world really missed out. Um, Temple of Doom, I sort of just covered. We get to color purple, and it's pretty great. Danny Glover's great. Um, you know, obviously, he's got the all my life I had to fight and whoopee, and he's got the Quincy Jones music, which is kind of different. It's in one eight five, which at that point, I guess E.T. was in one eight five, right? Is it? Yeah, there's a lot of soft focus, a lot of. Uh, clouds a lot of uh you know there's the uh the discussion later which i certainly was not wise enough to this at 12 or 13 to know that like 
maybe it was off that Spielberg's taking this Alice Walker classic, you know, African-American novel of huge importance and having the ultimate, you know, suburban white guy director of middle American America. I don't know. That was, There's been a discussion of that. It comes up a lot in the documentary. When I saw it, I certainly... I just remember, like, uh, you know, Danny Glover being terrifying in it. Somebody burning something in a stove, maybe a shoe or something. Is that it? Or someone burns a turkey and it tastes bad and everyone la- whoops it up about it. I don't, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't seen it since 35 years ago, 30 years ago. Probably saw it one more time when I was college age. I remember thinking it was really good. It was one of those, the epitome of mid-80s Oscar bait type movies, though. When the Oscar movie, you know, Oscars are bad. They're horrible now. In the 90s, they got a little better. It would be like Unforgiven or Silence of the Lambs and, um, you know, cool movies, at least, you know, that would be nominated. In the 80s, it was always like, you know, Trip to Bountiful, Passage to India, Out of Africa, things that you wouldn't watch again, you know, Plenty or something like that. You wouldn't watch that stuff again on a dare today, Cry in the Dark, whatever. And this was just seemed like quintessential mid-80s Oscar bait, Spielberg going for an Oscar, taking on this um, huge, huge novel. And I, I remember thinking it was good, but I... <laughs> Not uh, not going to do any big uh, rundown on it, because like I said, it's a blur. So is the next movie, Empire of the Sun, which I remember having an enormous, enormous scope. It's got Christian Bale, who's a good kid performance in it. It's got the ragtag guys at the barracks. You got Ben Stiller in there doing some vaudeville. It's very long. Um, it's very, if I remember, and I haven't seen it in a long time, it's a little different in terms of mood and tone. Um, it was, you know, Spielberg getting a little more serious and it wasn't as, it didn't have these as many, it had a lot of big crane shots and crazy Spielberg, you know, aesthetics, powder blue, you got the airline, you know, his aviation, his world war, you know, his war fetish basically. But, uh, I remember it, you know, it didn't have a deliver. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Didn't deliver a lot of the like one, two, three Spielberg audience crowd pleaser moments. Um, but it's a movie I didn't see when it came out. I was like, I don't want to see that. that looks boring. And I didn't get to it and I rented it. When I moved out on my own and I was new to Los Angeles and I would go to this this video store called Odyssey Video and it was in North Hollywood. They had porn there, too. So you could rent porn VHS and it would I didn't like I like Blockbuster because they didn't have porn because I didn't want any of the guys who've been handling porn with their hands that have been handling other things to touch the cassette and then touch my cassettes. So I do remember that, like when I rented Empire of the Sun from this sleazy video store, I like had to, you know, get out the tongs and the, the brun double paper towels just to handle it because I was so afraid that it had been re- returned in the porn bin. And I probably had rented porn with it, too, and couldn't wait to get to that. And then I'm stuck watching a two and a half hour war torn saga about a little kid. And I probably zoned out on it a lot and owe it a proper, proper rewatch. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going it's, I've gone 46 straight minutes and I need to take a swig of water, and I hope you don't hear it. Hold on. All right. All right. Always. Oh, man. <laughs> All I think about this is that Smoke Gets in Your Eyes song, which is totally depressing. I think about Ben jo- was no not Ben Johnson, Brad Johnson, like a total, like, who the fuck was that guy? Wannabe leading man of the late 80s. I think he was in Flight of the Navigator. He had all the looks. He looked like a Rick Rossovich kind of guy crossed with Tom Berenger. And he had five minutes where they were putting him in stuff. And he kind of went nowhere. He, I think he ended up in like faith-based movies or like military movies, you know, for kind of right-wing types. He was like, who the fuck was this guy? And this Dreyfus, Holly Hunter. 
you know, and I was 16 and in 11th grade, and this movie came out right when I got my driver's license. And my friend, who I've talked to you about in other podcasts, I, he was a big aviation buff. He loved airplanes. And I was like, I had my license. I was looking for any reason to go cruising, go looking for girls, go to the mall. And I was like, hey, hey, if you want to come out tonight, I'll drive. We'll go see this movie about airplanes. He's like, a movie about airplanes. And I'm like, yeah, you love aviation, right? And I duped this guy into, he thought it was going to be like Iron Eagle 2 or uh, Top Gun and then we're sitting there watching this syrupy two, just two bros who who struck out with the ladies all night. You know, we used to just drive up and down and I'd be blasting like Alice Cooper poison on the cassette player in my Malibu. And we end up at the North Hills or no, I'm sorry, the North Way Mall Dollar Theater. And I'm like, we're going to the big airplane movie now. And he's like, all right, let's bring on the planes, bring on the planes. And instead, we got a, a syrupy romance with Richard Dreyfus nattering around with Holly Hunter and the smoke gets in your eyes. And then for the big, you know, the big bonanzas, they bring out an earthly, a uh, heavenly um, Audrey Hepburn to give Richard Dreyfus some wisdom. And I'm looking over at my buddy, just two bros sitting there watching this kind of chick flick and he's like you he's like wanted to throttle me making me making him sit through this thing man i should have just gone alone but uh it's kind of a sweet movie it's very you know sappy and it's obviously a, a remake of uh of a 40s movie was it named joe something named joe so i'm not any authority on but uh it's okay i'm gonna uh take a quick break um, and I'm going to do a part two. I'll probably do a musical interlude. We're going to get to Hook and Jurassic Park and uh, all the rest. All right, hang on for part two. I can't go too long with this. Give me a minute or maybe I'll do two videos. But anyway, I'll catch you soon. Bye. All right, welcome back to the podcast. I'm still doing Steven Spielberg. We're up to the 1990s now, and this is about the part where all the... Uh, all the millennial kids are going to shoot me. <laughs> I'm going to get very unpopular very fast here because um, we're going to move on to Hook, which um, I've come to learn over the years is like a formative kids movie favorite for a whole generation of 90s kids who saw this really young and were enchanted by it. And it's a big deal to you guys. And I don't want to insult anybody. Um it's it was just uh not for me because it came out uh I was in my first year of college when this movie came out it was that season of um Nirvana and Pearl Jam blowing up and grunge and I would the, the Metallica Black album and the big movie around another big movie around that time for me was of all things, Last Boy Scout, the Tony Scott movie with Bruce Willis who I worshipped at that point in time and this big action movie with the uh, Willis and Wayans, it, just to give you like the back, this was the season that uh, it came out, I think, at the end of the year, 91. This is like all my friends had gone off to college. I was a high school, I, I, you know, graduated high school in May or June or whatever. And then I I was a commuter at Pitt. Anyway, all that is a way of saying, like, I could not have been in a worse mood for some, you know, affectionate, uh, warm, glowing nostalgia thing about what if Peter Pan grew up starring Robin Williams at his most sentimental and with all this syrupy lighting and uh, treacly score. And, you know, I think I probably dug 
Hoffman mugging like a jackass as as the villain, and Bob Hoskins is in there somewhere. And I cannot. I, I I've seen this movie twice. Both I saw it when it came out, and then a few years later, maybe on cable. I under I again. I know this is for you guys. You guys love this. I never have gotten anything out of Hook. It's one of those, and I know I'm not alone in this. A lot of Gen X guys and older people are mystified because this was regarded as a terrible movie when it came out. And I still think it is. But, you know, then again, there's things where, you know, Scarface or The Shining or whatever were regarded as misfires. And then there's a whole generation of, you know, the Blues Brothers is another one that like, you know, the younger kids got it or grew to love it. So maybe you're on to something with Hook. I don't know. I just remember the stupid Lost Boys with Dante Basco or whoever that kid was. And they're all dressed like they're out of like a Michael Jackson video and just uh, syrupy and, and treacly and just, I, I, <laughs> I hate to, it just, um, to me, it was like, even if I had been six when this movie came out, when would I have ever been into Peter Pan? Like, what dude is into Peter Pan? That's always been weird to me. All you guys are like, but I loved it growing up. Like, dude, when I was like five or six, like I say, I was watching Alien and The Shining and uh, the fog and stuff. Why do I keep mentioning the fog in the stupid podcast? But like uh, I would watch adult movies when I was, I mean, maybe I watched like some Looney Tunes or something, but I, I wouldn't have wanted to watch. I would never have wanted to watch. I don't even know what Peter Pan is now. And I even saw that terrible Joe Wright movie. Talk about a, a master of bombs, Joe Wright, that one with the, um, I want to say Rooney Mara was in it, but I can't remember even who the dude was. And Amanda Seyfried left a baby on the stoop. And I thought that one was pretty bad, too. I didn't see the Jason Isaacs one, which had the uh, the Coldplay song in the trailer in 2003. But just, just long way of saying, like, Peter Pan is not for me. There was never an era of my life where I really, other than, like, being on peanut butter or something. I remember there was... When I was in the 80s, like Sandy Duncan from uh, TV was was Peter Pan or she was Tinkerbell. Maybe, maybe. I don't even I think it was that she was like a gender flipped Peter Pan because she had like a pixie cut. I don't know. I've never understood the character. I didn't have a proper childhood where I knew these like fables and, and childhood tales and Disney things. It was just never for me. If you love Hook, I mean, I know it's a big widescreen splashy movie and it obviously probably meant a lot to Spielberg. I just remember it as being considered a bomb and I've never gotten, like I said, it's I've never gotten it. So um, I apologize to a whole generation there. I know I'm not the only one my age who feels this way. I, I think Hook, have I been calling it Pan or Peter Pan? Hook, uh, it sucks. I just, no, no thanks, man. Um, 93, maybe I'll get another like uh, rolling pin for this one. Jurassic Park, obviously, you know, this was legendary. Uh, this is a legendary Spielberg movie. This is considered one of his classics. And what Jaws was to me, I think that Jurassic Park has come to be for guys 10 years younger, 15 years younger, like everybody you know, just informally on Twitter, on movie message boards, on forums, when people talk about Jurassic Park, they're usually a few years younger than me, and they talk about this was, like, a mind-blowing experience. And I will say, like, the effects in this to this day are probably some of, if not the best CGI. These dinosaurs, they're incredible. It's it's beautifully lit. It's, just, you know, it's by Dean Cundey, who used to be Carpenter's guy and Zemeckis' guy in the Back to the Future movies. It's, uh, you, I mean, it's a perfectly constructed blockbuster movie. I don't really have any complaints about Jurassic Park. I know it's unassailable. Just to me, when I got to it, 
um, just to push it back in 1993, this was a highly anticipated movie. And this book, everyone had read this book by Michael Crichton, and I had loved this book. I thought this book was so exciting. I was on the edge of my... like it's the fastest I've probably blown through a novel, a pulp novel, and I was hanging on every word of it, and I could not wait to see what Spielberg, the director of Jaws and Close Encounters and E.T., could do with this insanely entertaining novel. And I, the movie, it's like, I've seen Jurassic Park, we've all seen it so many times, There's, it's not, you can't really nitpick it, but what I do remember was, I was marginally disappointed, which I know sounds insane, because everyone loves it, everyone reveres it. I remember thinking it was soft compared to the book seemed more exciting in some ways. I thought the character of Hammond, they made it very cutesy. And I remember internally rebelling at age 20 who wanted to be Mr. Cool, tough guy who was listening to Slayer or whatnot. And there's a, a cartoon to talk you through the uh, the exposition stuff. There's a little cutesy cartoon about the, the insect being trapped in the honey. And I was like, why is this so cutesy? Why is this so aw shucks? Even to the point where, like, the awe and wonder is a little bit lost on me because I've never been Captain Dinosaur. Like, I've never, like, sharks to me are scary. The ocean is awesome. I like that Jaws had a little bit of an undercurrent of, like, this, it created this town. And, like I said, Murray Hamilton is this corrupt mayor. It was very much a movie of the 70s. Even though it was Spielberg, it was a popcorn movie. It was populist. It was super uh, commercial, huge success, one of the biggest movie of all time at the time or whatever. Um, there was a, still a little bit of 70s cynic, cynicism and edge in it. Whereas Jurassic Park, even though it's scary, it's incredible, amazing dinosaurs and great set pieces. And Wayne, what's his name, Kramer from Seinfeld. And that part's so great. And the bathroom, uh, you know, the porta potty or whatever. Isn't, doesn't that happen? Am I imagining this? And the glass of water, of course. Jeff Goldblum at his best with all his wisecracks. I generally love Sam Neill in just about anything from like the Omen movie he was in to like Mouth of Madness to there was one something called Dean Spanley where he thought he was a dog, which is one of the worst movies ever made. But he's just he's a killer actor. He is so aw shucks in this and so excited about the dinosaurs. And he's such a Eagle Scout, a, you know, genial character that I wanted the edge of like a Roy Scheider I mean, some of this is allegiance to the book, but I think that Spielberg pumped up this, you know, gooey wonder to it. So when they're first seeing the dinosaurs and there's these push-ins and like, oh, like these googly eyes and everyone's like to me, because I'm not a dinosaur guy, you could put me on Jurassic Park and I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's a fake dinosaur. Can I can I go somewhere else? Can I go to Westworld and bang the saloon girl or something like I'm just not I'm not I'm not a dinosaur guy ever. Um, It's terrific popcorn movie. It's as good as. You know, I, I don't like the fact that it's shot in 185. It's weird to me, but I guess apparently he has said or people have divined that he did it because of the dinosaurs, the height and whatnot. I think to me, shooting it narrow gives it a little more of a TV feel than Jaws or Close Encounters, which are huge, wide cinematic. But I mean, I'm not going to convince anyone otherwise that, you know, I, whatever its flaws, it's certainly a really good movie. Samuel Jackson must smoke seven packs of cigarettes per scene in this movie. Um and the finale is just gangbusters, like the kitchen and the kids are pretty good in it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I registered my little complaints, but obviously this is like an immortal classic to it. Every Anyone who's come up after me and people still remember it. And like I said, you cannot, you know, it was amazing to me in the 90s because CGI was just starting out. And this, you know, this and Forrest Gump with the legs was, was mind blowing at the time. Even like the John Carpenter movie, The Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Some of the effects of that are terrific. And those are by the Forrest Gump people. This, what they do with the dinosaurs, which was why it was so weird. Like 
three, four years after this, CGI just kind of started getting so much worse, like that awful Stephen Summers CGI and the, <laughs> the Paul W.S. Anderson the, and, and the, the Escape from L.A. CGI and that airplane bouncing off the uh, ocean in uh, Air Force One. Just like, what happened? How did CG get so much worse? And even today when they do it, it still kind of looks phony and they do a lot of stuff shooting in blurry conditions in the dark so they can obscure faulty. See, you know, like that big uh, Godzilla movie from a few years ago where they shot the thing through like a, an ash-colored, burnished brown just so you could have dusk and haze so you never get a good look. Here's a movie from 1993, clear as day, master cinematographer Dean Cundy, and you can see it so beautifully and these effects are amazing to this day. Schindler's List. <laughs> I mean, this. I mean, this is a light podcast. I mean, I don't know. This is such a heavy movie, and it's such a. It's the movie that you know his career led up to. That you know, this obvious passion project, and having that year of Jurassic Park and this in the same year, just like the two extremes. Like he had worked up to these kind of socially conscious movies and themes and things like you know Color Purple. We talked about Empire of the Sun, and here here was like you know the most heartfelt movie ever to him about the Holocaust and getting it on screen in this, you know, uncompromising way that we had never seen before. And, um, you know, it's, it's rough. It's not a movie. It's not like it's ever like, Hey, let's throw on Schindler's list on a Friday night. I'm I, Hey, I got a wet 12 of Miller light. Let's have a good old time and watch Schindler's list. But, uh, it was something, man. I mean, one best picture, obviously, Liam Neeson, I think, is great in it. Obviously, Ben Kingsley and the knockout in this movie. Two of them, I would say. Ray Fiennes, obviously, this was like his kind of star-making thing. It's just this monstrous vision of evil as this, you know, the Nazi guy. And also, Embeth Davids as the, the woman in it. And it's a rare time, you know, Spielberg doing a lot of overtly sexual scenes where um, it's handled really well. And sometimes that's something that's very awkward in his, because you think of him as Goofy Spielberg, the alien ET guy, he can't do that. And here's a movie that I think, like, oh, it's as I mean, as dark as it can get, and yet still as hopeful as it can get. And then you know, not as hopeful as it, can, but there's an element of hope and an element of uh, you know humanity winning out. And that you know, the thing that everyone talks about at the end, where he's gonna, hey, this one pin could have saved so and so. It's you know, there's nothing funny to say about this movie. It's like it, it's just. It's like him at the top of his craft. I mean, I remember just as an aside, you know, because I can't think of much. I mean, I don't need to convince you how powerful it is or how great it is, but it's not a fun movie to talk about or even, you know, it's it's painful to think about. But I remember it came out when I was in college and some sorority girl was in a lot of my English classes. Like she was just kind of a ditz. And she's like, oh, my God, I saw this movie Schindler's List last night. You know, it was in black and white, but the girl's jacket was red. That was the first time I ever noticed a movie using visual style to say something. I'm like. I mean, it's a great movie, but you've made it to age 21 or whatever and noticed, never noticed movies using visuals to tell a story. I was like, yikes, man. That kind of like, I think I had a crush on her. And when she said like, that was the first time she ever noticed a movie doing anything outside of just straight ABC story. I was like, oh, wow. Wow. I'll catch you on the flip side, lady. I mean, wait, this, that, was, that was just a quick, uh, that was, uh, you know, University of Pittsburgh definitely took the best and brightest, but uh, it was, it was ni- 1993 was to me not a, I don't, I don't remember what else was even in, that was like the name of the father and uh, the piano and the crying game. I was, 
of the nominated movie. I mean, I'll probably sit back and watch True Romance of Carlito's Way a hundred times before I go back to Schindler's List again. I don't. I actually don't think I've seen it all the way through since opening weekend or whatever, just because the gravity of the movie is like, you know, it's kind of one of those, you got to see it once. Uh, you might not want to, you know, it's it's not like, you know, putting on stripes at two in the morning, like I said, but uh, obviously like a super high point in his career and uh, a few years off after that, right? Am I missing something? Was it kind of, he was kind of few and far between there for a while. And then he came back in 97 with two movies. He kind of did this again. Watch, I'll go back and I'll look out. I'll miss some Whopper from like 95. But, uh, you know, that was obviously took a lot out of him. And you go back and then 97, he kind of did the one for them where he did another Jurassic. He did The Lost World, which I know is very controversial among Jurassic Park fans. And then he did Amistad at the end of the year, like a serious movie about the slave revolt. Um, Jurassic World or um, Lost World. I kind of like it. I think it's maybe because I'm not as... I don't have the insane attachment love to the first Jurassic Park that most people do. Like, it's a sacrosanct movie to most, and they consider Lost World such a drop-off with such cheesy things, like Goldblum's adopted daughter doing the gymnastics and whatnot. I think everybody pretty much admits that, like, the ragtag crew of hunters with Thomas Wilson and, uh, or is it Thomas Duffy? I forget, the one from Death Wish 2. Pete Postlewaite. I think that stuff's really cool. That that scene is such a perfectly cut action scene when they all they all hit the ground running to do the hunt and the scene with Julianne Moore hovering. You got Vince Vaughn, hot off swingers, being the wacky guy. I think it's, you got the big yawn from Jeff Goldblum, everybody's favorite match cut, which is really funny. I, I And uh, Arliss Howard is the kind of asshole villain. I think it's not bad. I don't know. Everybody hates it. I it, It's definitely like... This is when the uh, Janusz Kaminski cinematography, it starts with like the more gauzy, hazy, like it's shot through a wrapper of Neko wafers or something. Look, that kind of that lacquered marble haze that took over Spielberg. Like you look at Jurassic Park and it's in total Dean Cundy, Back to the Future, saturated colors, very popping. Looks like, I mean, it, it looks like it was made for the inevitable NBC airing. The colors are so bright. And then Jurassic Park, you start to get more of that diffuse, that haze, that uh, sort of washed out, muted colors, Kaminsky thing. Um, I think it's kind of a fun movie. I, I I know it's like a big drop off for most people. I think it's only because I'm just three and a half stars on Jurassic Park. Maybe that I don't mind the three star, two and a half star Lost World. I think it's Amistad. Uh, all I ever think of is, of course, give us us free. <laughs> just thinks of Jaime and Hunsu doing the give us us free speech, which is the most rousing thing ever. And when you see it, you're going to just go around saying give us us free for like nine million years. And you also got McConaughey, you know, that was his not long after time to kill in Lone Star when he was breaking out. He's making these big Hollywood movies. He did contact around that time. And in this, he's got the mutton chops and those stupid glasses. And uh, he's really not very good. And then the end of it is a is a blowhard canned ham fest with Hopkins doing his big, you know, windbag speeches against, you know, marble columns. And he's got, you know, the 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 Kaminsky lighting and the treacly John Williams going and uh, it's the full Spielberg experience all in one thing you know you got kind of the grueling African slave revolt stuff which is hypnotic and it's got the it's set in sail you know it's on the big ocean and you got barnacles and um, you know it's very intense and uh, um, visceral and then you have ham bone theatric you know civics lesson Spielberg all in one movie um, then. 
uh, when I'm really going through all these, huh? Private Ryan. I mean, what more can you say? I love saving Private Ryan. I know it's one you always, as long as the internet's been around, as long as the movie's been around, there's always the guy who's going to go, it's just a fancy episode of Vic Morrow's combat. There's always that guy who has that argument. It's on any message board ever. There's the, the combat guy and the, I don't like the bookends guy. And the, the bookends aren't necessary, and, oh, it's only a great opening sequence, and the end's pretty good, but in between, it's combat movie. Fuck you, man. I think it's awesome all the way through, even though you got some all levels of ham acting. You got great acting from Hanks and Damon and Tom Sizemore, and then you got Ed Burns do, and uh, uh, Adam Goldberg doing their snappy repartee, you know, What's his name? Burns is sort of doing his, hey, these movie cameras cost a lot of money. Hey, you see, those Brooklyn Dodgers got something, you know, that that kind of talk. And Ted Danson rolls in, showing off his bald spot. And it's kind of a who's who along the way. But I'm with it all the way, man. I think even, you know, in between the combat stuff, the bonding things, the sniper part with Vin Diesel's amazing. Barry Pepper's great in it. There's you know, kind of haunting, like, scenes of moments of still and quiet in between the action. Like when they're, they're holed up in, where is it, maybe a barn or a church or something at night. It's, uh, it's all effective to me. I like all the camaraderie and the last act of it with Goldblum and that, that kill or oh, man, it's, it's just, it really gets to me. I love that movie and that year was also, you know, life is beautiful was nominated and thin red line was definitely the world, the world war two movie year at the time. I thought like thin red line was mind blowing to me. It was like me seeing 2001 first run or something. Like I saw it on this enormous screen and I had never seen a movie like that. Um, so I might've preferred that one notch better, but I like private Ryan just about as much. And I find it more rewatchable I, I mean, I know the complaints, but I, I'll just say that, you know, like many have pointed out, <laughs> Ryan definitely earned it because he's got some babes for uh, granddaughters there at the end. <laughs> but uh, it really, uh, that's that's a big favorite. Actually, of the post-classic era Spielberg, that one would be, you know, Schindler's List would be up there for me, Private Ryan, Minority Report, which I'll get to in just a second. Those are my big ones after that. Um what do you do after that, man? I should have brought my phone. I'm just going to start flailing. Isn't that AI in there somewhere? Or do you do something? Uh, all right, I'm going to take another break, and let's see if this... Uh, we'll do another quick break, and I'm going to get through this, I swear. All right, I'll be right back. Be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back to part three, Spielberg. Going through his whole career, this has turned out to be much longer than any of my other podcasts, so for all I know... You guys checked out an hour ago, and this wasn't 15 minutes, but maybe it's interesting to somebody. Maybe someone will like it. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of an epic, but uh, let's get up to the 2000s. And yes, it is AI was next, which we know is ostensibly, you know, a Kubrick movie that Stanley Kubrick wanted uh, Spielberg to uh, to actually direct. And, you know, uh, Kubrick conceived it and then wanted Spielberg. I've kind of always had this very dark and cynical thought. I don't want to say aloud. I was like my conspiracy theory on this is uh, Kubrick didn't really know who he was. <laughs> Just he's, he's like, if you could if you could bring back Kubrick, you'd be like, you really wanted Spielberg to make your AI right? And he'd be like, no, no. I don't even like that guy or whatever, but no, because when Eyes Wide Shut came out on DVD a year or so before this, they brought out, uh, they wheeled out uh, Spielberg like crazy to to just rhapsodize about about Stanley. He was just calling Stanley like you know they were the best of friends because you know he's making The Shining and they passed off the studio 
you know, where they filmed The Shining to Raiders and, you know, oh, Stanley would call me up this and that. And, like, I always thought, like, I mean, it's very cynical of me. Obviously, Spielberg is the most powerful director in the world. Kubrick certainly would have respected him and whatnot. But I always have, think it's more fun to imagine that, like, he didn't really like him and Spielberg's just pulling this out of his ass. Of course, that's not the case, but it's I, I it's my sense of humor to think that. Um, this movie, as many people have said, is kind of a mix a mix of the two. I've never found it. I've honestly never found it that Kubrickian in a way. Like it's to me, it's just, you know, there's a little bit of coldness in the early going, but I can't see a Stanley Kubrick movie where he's directing like a flesh fair with some ministry playing or whatever the ministry knockoff, or was it actually ministry? And then like, you know, it's gigolo Joe and this, you know, I don't know. This guy looks like Ryan Stiles playing the dad. I actually it's Sam Robards, but uh I think there's so much more Spielberg to this movie than there is Kubrick. As I mean naturally it's sort of a, a an oddity just by having two voices that would seem somewhat contradictory. Kubrick being this master, you know, cynical hard on um with this dark view of humanity and then Spielberg the eternal populist optimist guy and they're they're two things coming together. I think it like it looks great. It's obviously Kaminsky again. He's in full like blowing uh, white blinds and wind, hazy window sheen out of control. Uh, like I said, Jude Law is this ridiculous sex robot. That flesh fair thing is pretty goofy. People have a big ramble about the the tacked on what they complain is a tacked on finale of this kid staying underwater for a thousand years. Whatever it is. I don't even remember it. I haven't seen the movie in 20 years. I remember I liked it because of the visuals. And it was the kind of thing I was like, this is kind of Kubrick, right? This is. And uh, meanwhile, I'm squinting, waiting for like an Illuminati orgy or like a hot model coming out of the bathtub in 237 or, you know, sinister centered framing and, you know, ge- geographical precision or stored almond. And none of it's really in there. I mean, these are all just visual you know, superficial visual things, but I think it's just very much a Spielberg through and through. It's definitely interesting because of the question of authorship and whatnot. It's not one I go back to a lot. I'm glad a lot of people like it. Next year, I think Minority Report handled some of the similar themes way better. I think that's a just a, I mean, it's Cruz obviously finally got the match made in heaven of America, you know, America's most powerful director, Spielberg, with the most powerful actor of all time. You got Cruz and his choppy haircut and the precogs and uh, who's that chick that Catherine Morris is his wife, I guess that, uh, Spielberg was, you know, putting in, she, she was in the contender and whatnot. Um, and I think this is a great plot. And what I love about minority report, other than the visual style, which is just great. This is one of the times I really think the Kaminsky look, wor- it works so well. It's got that haze, that otherworldly thing that it's so ahead of its time with not just the precogs and this idea of like, st- you know, this kind of creepy idea of like stopping people's worst instincts before they even get to them. But also just the, you know, the shopping mall part late in the game with Samantha Morton and Cruz with all these like big garish advertisements and like almost like social media live going live um, years before it was kind of a thing. Um, um, I'll just say huge fans of the Colin Farrell stuff. I, and I also, this has one of my favorite things uh, that I love. I talk about all the time when a movie has almost like a fourth act, or like it's kind of reached the, the excitement is kind of boiled down and it goes on an extra 25 minutes just to like humiliate the old man played by Max von Sydow. And I think that, uh, Inside Man came out not too long after this. Kind of does the same thing with Christopher Plummer. It's just, and our, I love it when a movie goes for it. Like you've already kind of, I think that, uh, Man on Fire kind of does that too. Like it, 
you think it's it's kind of wound down to the natural conclusion. There's like a whole 20 more minutes of Denzel going to Mexico and Bad Boys 2 kind of has this when they go to Cuba. It's just one of my, I mean, there's a million other good examples of this, but uh, it's something I really love. I think it's just the mystery of it's good. I don't really like the, the, the cheesy ending where everybody, you know, he's patting his wife's pregnant belly and the precogs are living on some fucking Amish farm from 1862 or whatever. It's kind of rustic that's uh, out of character with the rest of the movie, which is very lean and mean. And um, yeah, it's one of, it's probably my last real uh, war of the worlds, which I'll get to in a minute, which I don't have to say too much about it. Cause it's a little redundant after this one, but uh, I really thought he was kind of on fire in this era. And this was an era where I thought the Kaminsky thing, which eventually got a little tired, really worked for these movies. Uh, what's uh, Oh, catch me if you can was the same year, which people love my great buddy, Jesse crawled. Really. I remember him really liking this one, the stuff with the, Leo and Christopher, if I'm talking too fast now, it's because I realize you've been listening to this for an hour and 15 minutes, so we still got like 15 more years of movies to go. I'm going to give these kind of a capsule from here out, I guess. Um, this was a kind of... <sighs> On the surface, it's a playful Spielberg. You know, it's kind of sexier than usual. It's a little more, you know... Uh, it's almost like a 60s kind of groove to it and it's like leo in movie star mode and it's got a lot of babes and colorful colors but it really does have a dark kind of sadness to it with the the walking thing and hanks and kind of this you know lost basically a kid doing all these cons and whatnot who's just looking for a father figure it's kind of like uh, a deceptively darker movie than you think it is because it's very candy colored and bright and then kind of heartfelt by the time you get to the end of it. It's a little overlong. It's not one I really return to a lot. But um, I know a lot of people really go to bat for that one. And uh, I can kind of see why. <sighs> Man, I am just so out of breath doing this. How many more of these do we have? <laughs> I ask my non-existent producers. I'm sitting here huffing and puffing. I'm going to have an asthma attack before I get to the BFG or whatever. Um what do we got next? The Terminal. We don't have much to say here. I always thought it was kind of cute. It definitely seems treacly. It's one of those things that, like, I can't believe it's not Robin Williams in it doing, like, his Russian immigrant routine, like, from Mount Moscow on the Hudson. His dumbass living in an airport, but, you know, and changing the wacky lives of, you know, Zoe Saldana and whichever, I can't remember if it was, D whatever E2 Mama to, uh, Tom Bien guy it was. I think it was Diego Luna, but don't quote me on it. It was cute. You see it once. You don't ever need to see it again. But I don't think it's bad. I know people didn't really like it at the time. I don't think it's it's uh, reputation has improved much. But it's it's fine. I don't think it's War of the Worlds too. War of the, War of the Worlds was something I thought was mind blowing in theaters just because of the sound and it was so intense and it's it's pretty electric and it's very uh, unrelenting for like most of the running time. It goes very soft at the end, which everybody complains about. I don't know a lot of people think that the uh, the son played by Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day is kind of annoying in it, but uh, uh, Dakota Fanning gives a great like haunted, creepy kid or a scared kid performance. Very good banter with Cruz as this kind of dickhead dad. He's wearing a ball cap. This also, movie also invented the concept of the solenoid, which nobody had ever heard of in the history of the world before they saw this. I thought it was like a five-star all-time sci-fi epic masterpiece of paranoia and great directing and great sheen and everything when I saw it. I When I saw it on TV again, though, it didn't really hold up. It didn't capture my you know, imagination and attention like it did. It was definitely like a, like a 
I wouldn't say it's a one and done, but it was definitely more powerful, more impactful on the big screen. It's still a very watchable movie. I think Cruz is really entertaining. He's got a cool jacket. I mean, I know that, but uh, then that was one of his years where he did that as his fun movie, you know, much like his Jurassic years. And then we get Munich, which, I, man, I, Munich is another one of the great ones to me of his latter era because it's so much just a 70s John Frankenheimer movie. One thing with Spielberg, he has all the resources at his hand. A lot of guys, when they do these like mid-70s, you know, auteurs or directors are definitely drawn to that period because they grew up watching all these, you know, William Friedkin movies and stuff like that and Bullet or whatnot or John Frankenheimer movies, The French Connection or French Connection 2. But Spielberg really has the resources to just really make it look like a movie of that period. Like it looks like Black Sunday or something that would have come out then. Um, those big boat cars, the giant, you know, big, you know, exotic locale backdrops. This kind of ragtag crew with like Daniel Craig and um, Eric Bana, who's got the best hair ever going in this movie. And uh, it's, you know, about the the Olympic hostage thing. It's so exciting and seventies. And I don't know. I just think this movie really kicks ass. I'm just like, uh, it's like, and it's cool and dark in a good way for Spielberg. Like it's kind of mean spirited when they do that assassination with those pipe guns on that lady. It's kind of grim. Everybody obviously has to nitpick that sex scene at the end does not work with Banna swinging his wet head around with some, you know, as we intercut with a, you know, a mass murder, basically with him getting, you know, shooting a load. <laughs> it's like maybe one of those times where Spielberg is way out of his depths where he's trying to do make, you know, be too adult or too sexual or make too big of a leap. Um, maybe we could have trimmed some of that. Otherwise, I think that's that's a. Uh, that's a pretty great one to me. I don't know. Um, what do we skip up to then? Uh, the, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Ah, maybe it's time to call this one a... No, I got to finish these? All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, my big problem with the Crystal Skull, and I've seen it a bunch of times, is just the plot doesn't make sense. And so much of this movie is exposition about things we haven't seen. They're talking so much about John Hurt and this adventure in the past, we don't get flashbacks to it. Much like way going way back to when I was talking about that lecture in the first Raiders of the Lost Ark when he's in that classroom, that lays it out in this, you know, it's, it's exposition. It gets a little long in the tooth, but it's still pretty clear and it all pays off. In The Crystal Skull, there's okay moments. I know everybody hates the nuke, the fridge. Everybody hates mutt. Um, it has some... I sort of like the candy-coated look of it. It's, you know, it's more, it's Kaminsky instead of Slocum. Um, I, some of the set pieces are fine. It's nice to see Ford back. It's nice to have Karen Allen for the banter. I mean, Kate Blanchett's pretty raz, rancid. Um, what's his name? Uh, Ray Winstone is pretty bad in it, or he's pretty annoying, at least. He's in Dom DeLuise mode, basically, is this, you know, his turncoat buddy who's always selling him out. It's just to me, like, they just, they're like, well, whatever John Hurt's name is was here and he did this. And, and like, I don't care what you're talking about. There's so much zone out in this movie just on an exposition level that even before you get to, like, the awful CGI and the fact that there's this totally supernatural alien element that wasn't, you know, the other movies had, you know, it's hard to nitpick that when you had the Ark of the Covenant and the, you know, the chalice with, you know, a completely supernatural afterlife thing in the, uh, uh, the third one. 
I mean, can you really complain that there's aliens, but it's just, it's not of a piece with the three previous movies. I maybe don't think LaBeouf is as bad as people say, but it, it's, you're not loving it by any me. Yeah. Uh, I watched it again a few months ago and it's just the same problem just came up. Like, I don't even mind. I mind that it's so phony and that Tarzan leap during that car chase that goes on 9,000 hours and compared to like the truck chase, it just isn't exciting because it's so phony, so fake. It wouldn't happen. It's, you know, not to be Jeff Wells again, but like the laws of physics don't even come within a million miles of applying here. And then he does a yodel or something and their car flies off a (sighs) Karen Allen jumps the car onto a tree and then down into a... It's so... It's so cartoonish. And... Uh, I, 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 I always kind of want to not dislike it because I think people are so hard on it that there's okay things in it. But uh, it's... Uh, it's not good. All right. We're going to have to speed this up here. We're going to go through the last 10 years of Spielberg really fast. 2011, he had a two for... In fact, two movies that came out in the same season he had the adventures of tintin and warhorse two movies that uh one of which i i said early on early on i alluded to this there's one spielberg movie i've seen and i don't remember it and it's tintin it's just not for me i'm not a cartoon i'm not an animation guy i don't know anything about the character of tintin i know it's an international sensation this like comic you know, this this detective thing with a dog and it's very French and it's known the world over. It's not known in America at all. I went, I gave it a chance. I mean, I know it has Daniel Craig. I remember something about the animation and one set piece of action that was pretty good, but it's a total whiff for me. Like, I have not, I couldn't tell you. If you like this movie, go for it, man. I couldn't tell you what I thought about it. I remember it was in 3D, it was in IMAX and I was just at a loss. It just... I, you know, I would individually, there'd be moments, there was some, like I said, some action beat that I thought that was really cool. I'm never the guy to go to when it's, when it's animated and I, I was lost. I was lost and I now can't remember War Horse though. I remember thinking it was underrated because it was in that episodic thing that I like, you know, this, I love this big majestic horse going through all these adventures and whoever the, the, that wannabe Matt Damon kid is like Jeremy, I want to say like uh, Jimmy Iovine, but I kid Jeff Jeremy. I don't know whatever that kid is who also was in. Uh, uh, he was in. <laughs> I'm just losing it. What the hell? Daniel Radcliffe made some horror movie that was like a Hammer movie, and then there was a sequel. Well, this douche was in the sequel, and I can't remember even what that was called. Anyway, the main guy is kind of a cipher. He's neither here nor there. But what I liked about it is this episodic thing and the pictorial sense of it. There's these beautiful shots that are reminiscent of an old classic Hollywood movie. These overhead big sky shots with this big red red sky. It has lots of big Western and big American, you know, not American because they're off in World War II. So I shouldn't have said that, scratch that. But there's just a huge scope to it and it, it, it it has a look of an old movie. It's color timed a certain way. I think I saw it projected in film. And again, these big skies, this horse, he gets caught in some barbed wire. I was like, oh, look at the little horse, buddy. Look at him getting caught. And it's, I don't remember that. I don't think I've seen it since. I don't know that I would want to go through the journey again, but it was ultimately worth going through. I think it's mildly underrated. I don't think anyone revisits it. It's kind of a forgotten Spielberg in a way. On the flip side, the next one, Lincoln, is a film Twitter 
a classic. Everyone loves fucking Lincoln. That aesthetically, it's it's amazing. There's this great shot with a, a scene with Joseph Gordon-Levitt where Lincoln's out on a he's out on a porch and this light catches his eye in this beautiful way. It's such a great shot. I like that he makes a movie that's basically a civics lesson look really beautiful. It's in widescreen. I just it's just a lot of ham bone and a lot of mutton chops and a lot of I vote yay with Stolbarg and Goggins and Spader. Everybody's kind of rancid. And I just couldn't help thinking like, God, I'm glad I didn't work for Abe Lincoln. This old, tall, lanky, boring fucking windbag coming in. You're trying to do your job. I could just imagine him at my desk and this, you know, strapping seven foot tall guy in a stovetop uh hat's got to come down and go well back in missouri kids when i I was like oh god i'm missing my lunch break i'm gonna miss my meal punch out now because i gotta listen to lincoln tell me you know he's spinning yarn but uh, it's certainly a good movie it's just dry to me but i it's amazing to me film twitter loves it they're like there's nothing more exciting than spielberg and lincoln you know he makes you know he brings he makes civics he makes politics electric and i'm like yeah glad you enjoy it dude i didn't get any of that conversely Bridges, uh, what is it called? Bridge of Spies, I like a lot. Although, it's, there's a weird undercurrent in this movie where Hanks is kind of super gay in it. And I ran this one by film Twitter, and nobody was going for this. But there's so many scenes where Hanks can't wait to get away from his dish rag wife, whoever it is. I think it's like Amy Ryan or something. He's always bringing like some blonde. Tw- <coughs> cracking myself up with this bad theory but he's always bringing like some blonde twink home and he's he lights up and he's all excited to hang out with these young young guys and i don't know there's a weird undercurrent to this movie this is obviously the movie that brought us uh, it didn't bring us because he was around as far back as like uh that movie he had some unsimulated sex movie like 10 what's his name mark rylance who now we can't get rid of this, this stallone's oscar thief but uh I, I like this. It's kind of in that Cold War espionage kind of thing that I enjoy. Although there is a part where Spielberg, it's always can't help but like ladle on the bullshit where Hanks, you know, he takes a little tour across, you know, he's on his train and we get all these mournful shots of the Berlin Wall. It's like, dude, you can trust us to know that we know what this was, all, what the stakes were. You don't have to ladle on like, you know, <laughs> Hanks, you know, cruising by and seeing someone get killed at the wall or whatever it was. It's just so much, you know, he always goes to that goes that one step extra but uh i think that one is quite underrated the the bfg i remember one thing about this movie is that i went to the arc light to see it and i was very excited about my tumbler of soda and the soda popcorn kid behind the counter had a white afro and he gave me my drink and my popcorn and I went up to my seat and the movie was about to start and he had not fastened the lid and I was stupidly holding it by the top and it went whoosh and splattered all over the front of the movie theater and they had to come in and send an usher to mop during the opening logos as I was mortified sitting in a puddle of flat soda and I was just sheepish and embarrassed the whole time. I don't like this movie at all. I think the BFG is stupid. I think it's creepy. This idea of this weirdo who lives in a fucking tree or whatever, and he has a a pubescent kid who every year he gets a new one that's kind of, I don't know. Something is off about this. I, I remember finding it appalling on some level. I'm not saying there's any like ill intent behind it. It's just a creepy tale that I don't like. I didn't like the way it looked. I didn't like Rylance's the look of the design i think it's like one of the very rare like total whiffs maybe somebody likes this movie but it creeped me out something unho there's something unholy you know when you saw like shape of water and you're like 
hey, you just ruined that poor guy's movie theater so you could fuck this fish man from the Blue Lagoon or Black Lagoon or whatever. The whole that squeezy, nasty vibe permeates every second of the BFG in a way I don't like. And that brings us to the final two. Oh, shit, yeah, two. We got The Post, which is, you know, C. Lincoln. It's another Spielberg lecture. I might like it a notch more than Lincoln, only because it's kind of 70s, kind of Odenkirk. You got the Ben Bradley stuff. Um, Hanks is always kind of solid gold. But at the end of this movie, there's a part where fucking Meryl Streep, basically, first of all, Meryl Streep is in full ham through all of this, and it's a big lecture. And then at the end, she inspires all the women. I'm like, how would all the peripheral women on the sidewalk, just passersby, recognize the owner of the the newspaper? Like, that's not, it's not like it's, you know... You know, Princess Leia walking down the street. Everyone's like, oh, it's her. And she, like, basically ascends up the court stairs. And it's just a 10-ton moment of absolute bullshit. It's like, it really annoyed me. And then Ready Player One, I think I kind of... I think it's kind of fun. I think Ben Mendelsohn's ridiculous in it. I enjoy the shining part. I obviously like Olivia Cook and whatever that... Whoever that main dude is. This Sheridan is... I was going to say Tyler Sheridan is pretty good. It's fun. It's so over-CGI'd and over-caffeinated. I hear the book is kind of, you know, that level juvenile, so it's probably about as good a movie as you can get out of that. It's big in scope. It's kind of Spielberg doing his Lost Boys from Hook thing again with the ragtag crew of kids and whatnot, and there's no direct... It actually starts, I think, with Van Halen, um, a Van Halen song, probably Jump, and I can't picture Spielberg ever knowing who Van Halen is, ever. That's my last take of that movie, other than The Shining thing, uh, which I said in my Dr. Sleep review, is we need to stop with the homage to The Shining. It's it's done. We've seen it all. It's cool to see the carpet every 10 years, but now let's retire it. But I thought it was kind of a fun movie, something I thought was going to be catastrophically bad, but was just sort of entertaining to me. I you know, it was one of those things I was like, that was really fun. And then immediately everyone was like, really, dude? And I was like, uh, you know, I didn't have the courage of my convictions with that rave. But uh, that's where we are. We got West Side Story next. That's what, 50 years of movies for me to blow hard on about. It's been 90 minutes of me rambling. If you made it to the end of this, you know, go buy yourself a Slurpee or something on me. I don't know. Uh, thanks for putting up with me. I hope any of this was entertaining. I probably spent too long on the early ones and rushed through the later ones, but uh, how much really do you do you need to hear about the BFG? I mean, that thing is that thing's pretty creepy. All right, you guys, uh, hey, have a good day. All right, bye.